Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I am very excited to introduce Ryan Kruger. Kruger is the co-founder and CEO of Freedom Day Solutions, a family-owned and operated financial advisory firm out of Houston, Texas. He is also the CEO and CIO of the Freedom Day Dividend ETF, ticker symbol MBOX. Uh, he is one of the most entertaining and informative followers on FinTwit, but more than that, especially for Twitter, he's going to—he's one of the nicest and most genuine people you're going to find on social media. Uh, you can follow him at Ryan Kruger ROI, uh, where you can find him posting about everything from gratitude and sliced bread patents to dividends and disruptive technology. Ryan, welcome to the show. I've been looking forward to this. You know, as as two dads of nine angels, we have so much in common. And then the stock market stuff on the side kind of looks easy compared to what we just talked about getting through real <laughs> life. And, and we are good friends in real life. And I am happy to share um, all of our work. It, I, I love doing it just like you. We have a lot in common and this will be fun. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely been too long. I think it's been almost, almost two years since we, ha we had you on the podcast. And, uh, and and you're right. Between us, we have nine kids. Usually uh, on FitTwit, when it comes to FitTwit, uh, when I talk to people, I have the most kids. And yet, uh, when when I interview you, you you actually have more experience than me when it comes to that, because I only have four of those nine, and you have the other five. <laughs> well, they can just sub you in. We go five on five, full court hoops. I know you can still move a little bit, so we'll, <laughs> well, they'll bring you in off the bench. Little bit is the key word right there. So uh, Ryan, like, I guess let's, let's just start here. Um, you know, like we've obviously experienced a whole lot of market volatility uh, the last 18 months or so, let's call it. And, uh, you know, I think one way, uh, like I think, or one thing that might be coming back in style a little bit for investors to look to are, are dividends. And, uh, you know, if you're just listening right now and not, watching on YouTube, I, I just threw up a, a headline from S&P Global Research, and it says, S&P 500 dividend aristocrats, the importance of stable dividend income. Dividends play an important role in generating equity total return. Since 1926, dividends have contributed approximately 32% uh, of total return for the S&P 500, while capital appreciations have contributed 68%. Therefore, sustainable dividend income and capital appreciation potential are important factors for total return expectations. Ryan, for people not looking at dividends, are they are they missing out on some real returns? I think so, um, and I I'm to be clear, I'll speak as an unbiased, objective math lead here because I sit inside a firm that provides every class of investment size and style to every type of investor but dividend growth in particular as the backbone of plans but to be clear this should never be about what any guest or portfolio manager likes or what they think or even what they believe in that's how all of us will get in trouble if we're not careful with conviction. I've always said curiosity will always beat conviction, has a much better track record too. I just learned um, 
I started out as a portfolio manager on Wall Street. Then I finally escaped so I could speak the truth and talk <laughs> directly to you and communicate <laughs> right, to individual right. investors without any interruption. I, I think this shouldn't be about what any guy like me thinks should happen. I think it should be a complete profound respect of what is happening. So dividend growth has a track record unlike any other. That's not specific to me. That's just objective. We'll dive down into what I think and where I spend my time. But in general, I decided after, you know, I've been doing this almost three decades now, that the best step a portfolio manager and advisor could take is recognition that this should not be about what we like. It should be about what stakeholders need. And in my humble opinion, with a variety of different ways to invest in better growth, or income funds, strategies, what most individual families need now or will eventually need is growth of income. Eventually, they're gonna all have one question in common. And I think our industry does a horrible job answering it, which we'll get into later with a very controversial um, belief that we've written extensively about why most financial plans are doomed. Um, I think they're gonna have one question, how much is enough? And the most successful included, how much is enough? And I believe it's not a number, it's not an asset number. If the studies have been pretty clear. If somebody has a million dollars, they think it's two. If somebody has five, they think it should be 10. I don't think it's an asset number. I think it is a free cash flow income number exceeding needs and wants for somebody to really finally know how much is enough. And that could be a different answer for everybody listening to this, which is the beauty of dividend growth income. It can answer and solve problems at a variety of different stages and levels, in my opinion. And I've just seen the math work. Yeah, there's a, I was just looking through the notes and from our last talk, actually, and uh, you know, you, you have this about your, your ETF is named Freedom Day. And you said, uh, the name of it is Freedom Day Dividend, which means a lot to us because we want to completely turn upside down this notion of retirement planning of a date and an asset number, rather the day when income through that mailbox exceeds the invoices going out. So that is our definition of Freedom Day. Yeah, I've seen it work. And I, I still break a tear every once in a while. I did yesterday in a meeting when somebody reaches that Freedom Day. Um, and to be clear, I don't think it can all come from a fluctuating stock market account of any kind, including dividends. I think there needs to be secure risk-free streams as well, which all of a sudden savers are being rewarded with. Lion's share of my account, I share with anybody who ever asks, where's your own money? I, I have beautifully boring AAA rated tax-free bonds as my bank account, so to speak, and just take the bank out. Right. But then the lion's share of the pay raises that I want will come through dividend growth. And, and to answer your original question, and just with a little bit of data that I don't take any credit for, this is just the objective math of a factor of dividend growth investing since I was born with zero active management skill applied at all yet, because I wasn't that good back then in 1973. Um, the equally weighted S&P, $100 has grown to 4,000. Dividend growers, $100 has grown to 13,000. So as a starting point and a backdrop, if someone still is interested in total return and how does it match up, which I long since ago left that race. I, again, I want to serve people and what they need. Um, it happens also 
to accidentally have some pretty good tailwinds. And I do believe companies that treat stakeholders in a different way tend to outperform no different than portfolio managers. And Morningstar has been pretty clear on this. Those with skin in the game have a consistent level of outperformance. And actually the, the one factor that's most compelling with the best track record is portfolio managers with skin in the games. I think companies that treat their stakeholders a different way have a pretty good track record with evidence. So this is a starting point before any active management or selection or quality control and sell disciplines, which I think is the best part of active management, is not a bad tailwind to start with. Sure, absolutely. So, but what if some people heard this and they said, well, you know what? A dividend aristocrat is a company in the S&P 500 index that has paid and increased its dividend every year for at least 25 consecutive years. And, you know, you, when you look at aristocrats, you, you'll, you'll quickly come up with like a lot of blue chip stocks like Coca-Cola, Target, Johnson & Johnson, McDonald's. Why not, or why, you know, why not just invest in dividend aristocrats? Uh, which I think like when I talk to uh, like income investors looking for dividends, it seems like that is like almost like the, the go-to strategy uh, for a lot of them is like, well, just look at the dividend aristocrats. They have such a great record and, and whatnot. What, 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 why would your, why is your strategy, I guess, looking for dividend growth better than looking at these uh, stalwarts, you know, the, the, the blue chips. I, th I think you could do a lot worse, by the way, than just sure. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. And there is nothing in the world wrong with having a passive in indexing approach. Um, you could do a lot worse because I've spent a lot enough time in this industry to know most of those reasons that you could do a lot worse. Um, however, just through process of elimination and working backwards, again with humility leading in math, as opposed to what I like more about that, I look at it as if you could just eliminate fundamentally inferior companies that are in fact bleeding, could you whittle it down and have a quality selection process with cell disciplines? And I'll just give you the examples that stick out to me. So sometimes the aristocrats, the tradition in name alone is a red flag. So when you have a company raising its dividend by half of a percent sure, to right. keep that streak alive, um, what is that really telling you? Are they interested more in that tradition or the math and is it sustainable is it quality and i just dug up this number since inflation is kind of coming back in a topic again just to give you an example specifically of, of why i think you can whittle the list down and why we hold a concentrated portfolio rather than the entire basket so the, when i say red flags two-thirds of the aristocrats matt most recently in the last year their dividend was raised at a rate below inflation rate. A third, less than half, 15 raises were less than 2% year over year. So I get a little nervous about that kind of nobility. Yeah, no, and, and, and you know, you can see it. If you went back a few years, uh, you could go back to like GE when uh, you could tell their business was struggling. And yet uh, like for, for, a long time, they stubbornly refused to like, like instead of reinvesting back in the business where they needed reinvestment and, and uh, you know, more, more resources, they were like, they, they felt like they couldn't cut their dividend because their shareholders would revolt or, you know, you'd see a bigger sell-off or whatever. And of course, all that led to was uh, years of 
not reinvesting in the business, and then eventually cutting the dividend anyway. And I think, uh, you know, more recently, Intel would be like a good example of a company that was like, you could see is like, they're getting behind, uh, you know, some of these other uh, Taiwan Semi and, and Samsung, they're getting behind in their uh, technology, and they could really use some more reinvestment in the business. And again, for a long time, you're like, that they pay a lot in that dividend. And if they cut that back, they could reinvest it. And again, they're kind of stuck in that, like, well, we have to pay a dividend because it's our tradition. It's what we do. Our shareholders expect it. And, and to give you an example of what I meant earlier by respect for what is happening, what, what we think should happen, or in this case has happened, the tradition, you can, I, I just believe in homework and, and you can do some, where is where are those dividends being funded from? And, and everybody talks about growth and an advantage and an operating advantage and a moat, which I frankly think is more often a lazy description of a portfolio manager that doesn't want to do more work and stopped being curious and is hoping things just work out. So when you look at free cash flow, it may be growing, but what is the direction of that growth? Is the growth rate in fact declining? Because all moats, no matter how big, can spring a leak. And all small creeks can get wider. So I'm looking right. at the direction of the advantage. When we look at, you'd be surprised how many aristocrats and S&P 500 companies in general are not even growing their operating revenue top line. And in order to pay a dividend, they may be paying out more than 100% of free cash flow. So just measuring the business operating advantage and then the growth of that advantage and the change in direction, the, the aristocrats, for example, if you look at the declining growth rate for those dividends from 10 to five to three years has gone from seven to 6%. Again, you could do a lot worse, but right. the direction of change is very telling to me. Whereas if you just simply apply a quality selection criteria and want to own fewer names, you can handpick and our particular, our average dividend growth rate currently from three to five to 10 years is 15 to 18 to 20%. So it's accelerating growth. And that gives you a lot of room for error. And when something changes as an active portfolio manager, have a sell discipline. I think that's more important than any selection criteria of what to buy is what to make room for and what to unlock. And so sell disciplines to get kicked out of the S&P or to get kicked out of the aristocrats it takes a lot. You have to go to zero or cut. And that, right. that's, wait, that's waiting too long, in my personal opinion. Math, math would back me up on that. So, uh, Ryan, what, what do you look for when you're including companies in your, in your ETF? Like, what are, what are the, the criteria or the factors you're, you're, you're specifically looking at? So, I start with, when, when I talk about an operating advantage, just looking at the business, operating revenue, free cash flow, and I want to look at profit margins and return on invested capital and each one of those metrics. And then, as I said, what we do, a lot of that anybody can find, by the way, and, and sure. some of that data and standalone is great. What I do by hand then is we'll go in and look at the rate of change over time to see if those moats are springing a leak or if there is a sudden, even slightest turn in margin expansion all of a sudden, or why in the world, and we'll talk about examples later, if a consumer is slowing down, why is some store that I'd never gone into necessarily 
all of a sudden having record operating revenues. I mean, well, I'm looking for those changes in direction, which is often located at, at confusion or, and this is where I get really excited, undervalued, uncrowded spots. Because what the, the efficient market theories and why I've ripped out all these chapters in my kids' economics books would say, if there is steady or fundamentally superior growth, then the market is going to reward those with premium prices. And I just think math and facts and nonfiction, which is my version, I like those much better than textbooks, sure. would, would, would argue every single day with that because not only are we able to achieve faster growth that is accelerating, but we are underpaying. We, our average valuation compared to the aristocrats or the S&P in general and our peers, because I'm a competitive mathlete, um, we're underpaying. So you can wait to find on average lower valuation and probably a lot less volatility there, although it's no guarantee and I don't mind volatility, but if you're underpaying for faster, healthier growth that is supported, and I talked about payout ratios, a lot of folks look at earnings payout ratio for dividends. I choose to look at free cash flow payout ratio. Um, and I wanna pay, I wanna get paid with less than half of the free cash they're generating, giving much more dry powder to do more in the future. Right which is a huge factor. So we have more dry powder on average on top of faster growth and cheaper valuations. Um, and that gets me real excited as a stakeholder and why some of these pay raises year over year have been exceptional in any kind of market. Because I think what bulls and bears can both be wrong about, what an investor needs to think about more often than most of us would like to talk about is what about a market that goes nowhere for a really, really long time? It's sure. happened on my watch. It's going to happen again. We might be in one of those now or day I got married 13 years later, the stock market was exactly where it was. So along the way, if you want right. to be reunited with your money or live on some mailbox <laughs> right, money, right. there are companies that grew their dividend every single year during that period of time. Yeah, no, it's a good reminder. Like so, like if you uh, if you can see this this chart behind me on the wall, it's like a, it's a remind. You know, it's called the big picture, and it shows like asset returns over a hundred years, and it's a great reminder that like look over time, uh, you know, a lot of asset classes they're expected to go up. However, within that time, it's also important to realize, especially if you're uh, retired and trying to live off your asset base, that there can be long periods of time that looks small on a hundred year chart, um, but big when you're living through them where the stock market doesn't really go anywhere. Like the, the 13 year, you know, the seventies is a great example, uh, you know, but uh, uh, you know, from the, the top of the tech bubble 99 to uh, you know, through the financial crisis, it was another time where it was, it was down and up a lot, but there, overall it was like basically flat. Oh well, yeah, we got to live through those squiggly yep. little tiny lines on that. And I remember yes. when I was on Wall Street, all those Ibbotsons that were hang behind the advisor and they would always say, just hang in there. And I've told anybody who hires me, fire me if they ever hear me say those words. Um, and, and, and a fun fact for all those plans that typically rely on those eight, nine, 10% historical long-term average rates of return for the stock market, um, and I think average is the most dangerous word in financial planning. In a hundred years, the stock market has ever in a year where we have to live 
through and see how is would something to again to answer the question how much is enough landed any decimal point in that big wide range of eight to ten percent the stock market landed between those numbers that almost every plan is based on one time in over a hundred years so the reality is we have to deal with a whole lot of other things which we like to talk about and gives all sorts of fodder for investors to be excited or worried about but along the way I want to know what I, the one investment metric that I could look anybody, no matter their sophistication level, in the eye and say the only metric that you can hold in your hand to know what is real during any one of those years is what did you get paid as a stakeholder? And the notion that dividends are only from boring companies that ran out of room for growth is also not true. There are plenty, sure, of course, where, and I don't want to own those, but there are companies that have the ability to grow a dividend add and increase R&D, pay down debt and buy back stock for future growth and right. rewarding stakeholders. So I think that, um, I think that is a, a myth about dividends that is pretty clear with a, a number of different examples. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, I mean, AI is the big hype thing right now. And, and like, and, and I think it, it will be big. Uh, I think there's a lot of changes coming. I'm not trying to say it's, it's all hype by any means, but like the company in the lead there might be Microsoft. And guess what? They pay a growing dividend uh, every year and they have plenty of money to do that uh, without, uh, you know, without being a, a boring, just a boring, uh, slow growing company. And, and to be clear, I don't think we had a great talk before we hit record. It, this shouldn't be an either or about almost any topic yep. in investing. So the idea, the reason I like to answer how much is enough first with rising free cash flow streams. And if we all know that's one of the best ways to measure a business, why don't more investors and advisors require that of their own plan? What is the free cash flow I can generate, the mailbox right. money so I can sleep? Because if you have that backbone, that really balance sheet, I call that sacred money. You're going to have to rip out of anybody's hands and not be, it's going to be difficult in the worst of markets. And I've lived through two 50% market crashes. If you're getting a pay raise during a 50% market crash, good luck taking that company away from a true stakeholder. But what that kind of peace of mind should do is unlock the doors, Matt, to do all sorts of speculation that you and I both also talk about on the side, all sorts of high risk yep. venture yep. with a small piece, because yep. all of a sudden you're not using scared money to do it, giving yourself the ultimate advantage for the growth side of a portfolio. A uh, great point. So like while we're kind of talking on this topic, um, you know, traditionally uh, you'll hear people will hear like the 4% rule, uh, which is basically the, the rule that retirees, uh, can safely withdraw four percent of their savings uh, in the you know every year, and you can adjust that amount for inflation in sub subsequent years. Uh, and that's you know that guideline is based on like historical stock and bond market returns, uh, like assuming a well diversified portfolio. And that's mostly what you hear. People will say, yeah, four percent rule. So if you have like a, a million dollars, you know you can take out forty thousand, or, or you know however that math works out. Um, but like I know in uh, like on your blog, you've talked about like there might be problems with that 4% rule. That's a more polite way of putting it. But I, I like to have fun with these facts too. Um, and I give a ton of respect to the godfather of the safe withdrawal rule, especially because he's humble and honest to, to say himself, professor at Trinity University, I didn't ever say this was supposed to be a rule. <laughs> right, right, right. Wall Street grabbed it. 
because advisors could very easily express. And when I started, I saw plans leaving the door that was based on a Peter Lynch model and another great stock picker that I have profound respect for. But he said, if you market's going up eight to 10%, like we just talked about every year, why do you own any bonds or worried about income? Just withdraw from that. And I saw plans walking out the door where if you could pull, if you make 10%, you pull 7%, what's the problem? And these were the best wealth managers at the time. Hmm. And all of and I just did the simple math. And at that time, one of my last meetings before I escaped Wall Street, I just simply asked a room full of those advisors, take a guess, million dollars, you make 10% a year on average, no funny math, and you're pulling out 7%. How much is it worth at the end of the 30 years? And I used that last period right before I left 68 to 98. And the answer was you're bankrupt in 13 years, making 10%, mm. pulling out seven, no funny math, because real actual returns mattered more than an average rate of return. So I give the professor for the safe withdrawal rate a lot of credit because at least four is better than seven. Right, right, um, right. The, the problem, Matt, I think is that most of these families that have worked their tails off to achieve more peace of mind did not sign up for this actuarial confusion of how to adjust this every year and inflation rates and interest rates that the safe withdrawal, we're living in unprecedented times in a lot of ways. So there's no rule of thumb that is going to work. And the godfather himself humbly admitted, I didn't stick with it. He is not using it anymore. And he actually signed up for a market timing newsletter. And he is a great investor, great academic research, has all of this at his fingertips. So rather than talk about what could go wrong and why 4% is too optimistic, because now you're going to have years and years and years, safe prediction here of, is it really 3% or is it 5 And they're going to try to adjust this. And it's all avoiding the real issue, in my opinion. So rather than use a bear market example or an interest rate example of what could go wrong, there's plenty of those. Right. I like to use the example of what could go unbelievably right. And so I, I use the example, and it's on the blog, of, of if you could be Doc Brown and get in a time machine and go back and retire right before the best technology growth stocks that we're all so fascinated with. So 2000 to today, and I have all the examples of the most disruptive, unbelievable technology, and you got them all in the NASDAQ, the best period in history for technology growth. And your average annualized rate of return was 3% through the end of last year. <laughs> so you get the best run in all of tech, isolating tech, and you're below the supposedly safe withdrawal rate. So that's not even including all of what could go wrong. That's what could go right. And I would just say my, my rule of thumb is next time you hear that, and again, I know I'm offending more than nine out of 10 advisors in an entire industry that I escaped with a simpler truth, but I, I call it WOA, W-H-O-A. Next time you hear about a safe withdrawal rate, that is confusing. And people go Google safe withdrawal rate and see what a poor investor has led. There's more questions than their answers. That's not what a rule is supposed to do. Right. So whoa is withdrawing hopes of appreciation. Whoa is not a plan. It's a prediction. I would much rather be able to hold in my hand and know what's real with free cash flow. And any appreciation is just that. It's upside. It's not counted on. It's not planned on. Go enjoy it, but don't count on it. Right, right. Uh, let's... Let's talk about some of the stocks in your portfolio. 
um, you know, I you you have some natural gas companies in your portfolio, like Williams or Enterprise Products. That's probably unfamiliar with at least most of my listeners. Unfamiliar to me. What uh, what do you what do you what do you see in in natural gas in like these companies in particular? I think it might be the most uncrowded opportunity I've found in my career. Um, it controversial politics, all of the ESG debates. Throw all that aside, although I think that set up this opportunity on the cycle. And to be clear, even though I'm in Texas, I mean, there was a recent 10-year period where I didn't own an energy stock, not one. I almost got kicked out of Texas. Right. I had to, almost had to come near right. you in Florida. Um, to me, this is all about math. So I have z there's nothing here that is about, again, what I think should happen, but a profound respect for what is happening. Because of these cycles, now I, if I had to guess what's being most underappreciated is, oh, these guys are going to do it again. There's going to be a boom and bust cycle. These companies learned their lessons and they're conservative now and their balance sheets are better than ever. And all of the sudden, what I think we're most afraid of, we're ignoring the facts. And I'll just give you a couple from William's recent update and their own disclosure after we got more dividend pay raises for more cash generation. So what's quietly happened, and, and I don't have any politics here at all, but carbon emissions have already been reduced in this country dramatically. So all of this environmental debate, which has set up this opportunity, I think, in the stock market, is misguided to begin with. Um, and we have an economy that has grown substantially in the last decade and a half, and carbon emissions are way down. And natural gas specifically is responsible for more than half of that, just simply using the cleanest burning fuel for power generation in this country has, Matt, done more to reduce carbon emissions than all of the stuff we debate about. To give you a specific example, it would be the equivalent. Just using natural gas to replace a cleaner burning fuel would be the equivalent of removing 111 million gas guzzling automobiles off the road. So as a backdrop, if we were smart in this country in politics, which I'm not betting on. Right. We would, right. We would not, actually not be not a good bet. <laughs> we would we would be leaning into using this now to have the same effect around the world and using our natural gas abundance and shipping more LNG because 2022 set a new record again for coal-fired plants around the world. So all of the debates we're having in this country about plastic straws, I put up a picture in the blog about it's the equivalent of you know, I don't fly first class, but I, I like, I took a picture of this teeny tiny little curtain that separated first class from the rest of us. Right. That curtain was doing about the same job as our debates on the environment in this country when the rest right. of the world is burning coal. So an infrastructure and Williams and EPD are a couple of my favorite examples of pipelines, transmission and storage that is sorely underbuilt. I mean, we can't even and, and all sorts of our own goofy rules and regulations. I, we can't send natural gas to my sister in Boston from Texas because of our own goofy. So there's all sorts of reasons that we've made it difficult for these guys to operate already in our own country. If we were to unlock some opportunities around the world, I think there's extraordinary upside. But meanwhile, if not a lot changes, they're generating enormous free cash to do what we all rely on. And 
any electrification or renewables requires natural gas to begin with. So it is among the safest bets and I think most misunderstood and pays us while we wait, whether they figure it out or not. And the politics is goofy. I mean, you go one year, they're, they're wanting to tax them on profits. The next year, they're writing them letters begging for more. Think about how these CEOs are dealing with that, sitting in the middle of that storm. It's, they couldn't have had a more difficult backdrop and they're still printing cash because of real reality. Now, what would you say to like people who ask, uh, well, what factors go into the price of natural gas? Uh, like, uh, I'll just say for me, it, it always makes me a little nervous at least to like, well, if there's factors outside that company's control, like the price of a commodity that they sell, uh, it just like, it makes me a little hesitant to uh, like invest in that company. Uh, so what would you say to, to people like me, like wondering about the commodity price that they sell and transport and store and all that? You're not wrong. And, and the speculation and price dependent companies, um, unlike these transmission and storage and pipeline businesses, enormous risk and fluctuation. I think that's quietly the best dividend we've gotten in the world over the past year is the price of natural gas having plummeted with an abundant supply, thanks again to technology in this country, um, they, they get fee-based revenue, the pipeline. So they're not at all dependent. As a matter of fact, if it makes it even clearer that this cheap abundant source could be used and leaned on, it would be yet another compelling reason to build out and improve the infrastructure, which we need. I think the better example of price confusion and this opportunity we have hiding in plain sight with cheap, abundant, clean natural gas would be, you know, all the attention on electrifying and renewables. To give you an example that will kind of maybe blow your mind on price, to, to just electrify New York for one day of demand with solar, that natural gas is needed to build all this stuff, by the way, would require 528,000 football fields of solar panels about 600 times more than they have today at a total construction cost of a trillion dollars. So price, to, to your point in a different second order thinking here is a more compelling reason to let's sure. have this a dialogue, not an either or of using traditional sources in transition to a much brighter future with better climate, which we're already going there. Um, I called our ESG post that's on the site, Energy Smuggling Goods. There's all sorts of good news already happening. And who better to find and help with the problems than the guys with the blueprints that caused them? I, I think that's the most underestimated upside of some of these traditional energy companies. They had kids and grandkids also. Sure. They want to be sure. good stewards. And the ones that don't. They're, they're, not, they're not villains in, in dark rooms, dimly lit rooms, smoking cigars, thinking about how they can destroy the planet. And the ones that are, and you, capitalism does a better job at regulating them. They wipe them out. They get too speculation. They have too much debt. They get wiped out. That's the beautiful thing about the stock market and capitalism and why it has a longer track record than any politician or rule or regulation. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. That's, that's interesting. I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to look more into those companies. Uh, let's, what about Nexstar? So this is more... Like with, with all of digital, uh, you know, everything's digital. This is kind of a, a throwback. T tell us what Nexstar does and, and why their business model uh, can survive in, in our digital age. Well, I hope that most listeners 
had to rewind that and say, what in the world, did, what is Nexstar? Because I, I, I like when somebody that we work for doesn't know all of their holdings. It, it, it means we're doing some original work. And this is a company that not a lot of people have heard of. And it's certainly in the world of virtual reality, um, most folks would probably snicker at this idea, which delights me um, because our annual picture book, we, we made a, a simple call um, with a bunch of data and pictures and, and charts, but a peek around the corner. I think we're gonna return to real reality, which as two dads, we're a little biased. I, I kind of <laughs> like it. Right. Um, I think it's better than virtual reality. So Nexstar is the largest owner of old-fashioned television stations <laughs> in the world. Is and I, I mean, I still need help now finding a television station with all of our buttons and remotes for my, one of my kids. Um, and I just think about why some things will not go away. And that's a great dinner supper conversation that I think is better than any MBA. If you ask your kids, what's one business that will be in the same business? when you're talking to your kids. And I think that's a pretty decent start. That's my kind of moat. And at worst, it's a great conversation starter and some funny answers. Right, um, right. So the last last year, out of the top 100 broadcasts, 96 were live sporting events. A couple of other were politics. An old-fashioned television network, now more than ever for an advertiser, with an abundancy of choices, with all sorts of content that I can't keep up. I don't have time anyways. Right. I actually think that has become a feature, not a bug. So we're not lost in a sea of digital confusion. Those live primetime events are now more valuable than ever. It's the only thing an advertiser will even know what works. Um, and so I thought just, and again, the, the simple stories hiding in plain sight. So we talked about the metaverse, the king of virtual reality, up almost 100% this year. Great performing stock, a lot of great fun things happening. All sorts of room, I think, in somebody's portfolio for speculation on what will happen next, the game changers. I just love the game unchangers, and I think they do shockingly well and would surprise. And I share this with any, it's not a specific recommendation by any stretch. There's all sorts of game unchangers. Um, I think they're more rare and more profitable than the game changers. So I share this with anybody the next time they hear an if only statement, if I'd only gotten in meta at the IPO, or if I'd only gotten this technology and we shared Doc Brown's example of real math a minute ago. So if I'd only gotten in Metaverse at the IPO, I'm up, I think, more than 500% as we talk here today, Matt, it's a good run. That old-fashioned real reality television network operator over the same time is up 3,000%. That's incredible. And like, you know, uh, I I definitely did not know that. You know, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would have guessed it, it even outperformed. Uh, so it's an unchanger, like its business model is the same. Like, uh, and why do you, I guess, so I'm, I'm not familiar with this stock at all. So like, I'm, I'm that guy who's like, I vaguely knew what they did. Uh, but like, so why, but why will this business, I mean, we have live sports, but don't we watch that on streaming apps now, or won't that happen in the future? Why do we think this will stay the same? I guess. It won't stay the same and we will have new choices and it might not 
continue doing as well. I think it has a lot of good tailwinds for a reason. I also think it's a business that not a lot of people can or want to get into. So again, uncrowded is a healthy part of this discussion. I personally will still be probably watching, and I watch less TV than ever before, but there's a few things that are must-see. And I think they've carved out and bought up all sorts of fragmented business, which I love, rolling up fragmented individually, locally owned and operating, some mismanaged. Um, and I think they're at a premium. And I'm guessing, even though I personally don't like to be in politics, I'm guessing there will probably be a couple of political shows over the next year that they will pay, be paid more than ever to broadcast. Um, and some of those streamers and new content providers, to your point, some of them will work and some of them are paying more money to produce the content than they're receiving from a very fickle customer and they're bleeding cash flow while the old fashioned real reality guys are printing right. cash. So right, I, right. I find an unusual opportunity there. So um, I know for this next stock we're gonna talk about with five kids, you're probably in there more than me, but for Dick Sporting Goods uh, is another one in your portfolio. And I can't tell you, and unfortunately when I go there, it's usually like this, hey dad, this season starts tomorrow and I need this mouthpiece, you know, anything from a mouth guard to a jock strap to, to a, you know, uh, like a baseball batter. Or I need this tomorrow, by the way. And it's like, son of a gun, <laughs> like, you know, what time do they close? <laughs> like, we got to get there right now. Got to leave like, in, you know, two minutes out the door. Uh, you know, I know your kids are involved in sports. So I know you're always at Dick's. Why is Dick's Sportings good, uh, an attractive opportunity? Well, it's a. It, it, this was like picking amongst my kids. I mean, any the, none of these holdings are more compelling than another to me. They all tell different stories. This one, I'll just share humbly, is an example of an area. If I relied on my own retailing instincts, and again, you, when you listen to tech experts or retail experts, or I, I wouldn't have made a nickel in this business. I'm the world's worst shopper. I can't stand going to any stores. And by the way, Amazon was supposed to put them all out of business. So why all of a sudden are people going to some stores like this? The math led me there. So we hold a tournament of stocks every weekend and just look at the objective nonfiction of what is happening, not what I think should happen. Because it relied on what I think should happen. There'd never be a retailing stock in my portfolio. But what started to emerge years ago was a very compelling and different path of while the consumer was supposed to be slowing down and we have every reason and headwind how in the world did this little store generate all-time record operating revenue last year and it took them a long time by the way i mean it started the history of the store is compelling as dads i mean one store to 50 took 50 years wow and what they're doing and all of a sudden their delivery is quicker and more reliable than even Amazon. So what they do during pivots and when the games are supposed to be changing, here's another game unchanger of a good old fashioned sporting goods store. When again, competition has dwindled and melted away. It actually started as a fishing and tackle store where a kid, and you and I have this in common too, the old fashioned summer job and working, which I think all of our work will have a higher ROI than any of our portfolio ideas. Uh, spoiler alert, I'm sorry, but that's more important than any investment podcast. Sure. This kid, teenage summer job, told his boss, I think we should add fishing and tackling. 
boss said, you're dumb kid. You don't know what you're talking about. Went home with an idea, asked his mother who had just lived through the depression and had little to no extra income at all, pitched the idea. She reached in her cookie jar, $300 to back this kid to open a fishing and tackling score that became Dick's, who his son later took over. Hard work has good dividends too in the family. Right. And it took off from there. And where it really, really took off, Matt, was when the son, in an act of great team sports, the best move you can make as a coach is self-scout. He said, what could we build across the street that would put us out of business? That's a great question for any of us to ask about our own investment portfolio too, by the way. 100%. What a great question. And he studied it and he said, what we don't have that most do is a team. And that's another good question with skin in the game. So he built an operational team of excellence around him. Another good tip for any investor. And he's done exceedingly well. Um, They also pivot and they continue to remain curious. So Matt, when they raised their dividend, and here's a good example of a low yielder that's not going to appear in a lot of dividend portfolios, not a certainly not an aristocrat yet, it, an uncrowded opportunity, I think, and it only yields a little less than 2%. And I call it the old-fashioned Yogi Berra math of 285 was his career batting average. If all you have is a back of an envelope and you want to beat all of Wall Street advisors' plans, which we just have been chopping up on this show, sure. So Yogi Berra batted 285. If all you do is have a low yielder of 2% and that dividend grows let's say 8% over eight years, then your yield on cost, I call that mailbox math, your yield on cost is now 5% and rising. If nothing else happened, no, not a penny of appreciation from the stock market, 5% I think is better than 4% math. If we just talked about the save withdrawal, a free cash flow, no help, no appreciation whatsoever, and that 8% is conservative. I shared personally, we like companies that are growing double that. And Dix by itself just announced a 100% dividend pay raise. But that 285 math, the Yogi Berra math of the low yielders, which some people ignore, and they buy these high yielders that end up not growing. This is why I love dividend growth math more than any other. Right. can add up quickly. And so all of a sudden, that $300 from a cookie jar they just distributed to stakeholders $300 million in dividends. And I promise you, every time we talk, I'm going to try, because you always give one to me, but the, the belly laugh as a dad that I am always have as a special dividend for you. What I learned, because this is what I love about this business. I don't know what's going to happen every day, and I, I don't have an alarm clock. I race in here. So what I learned that they, I didn't know the, the history of the game changer when you're at your little league game next time. So Dix owns Game Changer, and they used to be I just- I do know that, league. actually. I do know that, yep. So they it used to be just for the pitch count and the innings. Well, explain, so explain what it is, though, for people so, who, yeah, explain so, what- So it's an app where the old-fashioned scorekeeper now on their phone could log the score and the innings pitch because what it was supposed to protect little kids' arms. Right. Um, now, there, there is nothing on that app that prevents the lunatic parents from going and being on three different teams and right, right, pitching right. for the- so if nothing else, I have a little division of my own personal research that I call PNC insurance, Matt, and you're going to love this line because you're a, a, a policy owner in many ways too. So some of these businesses that were forced 
to pay for like property and casualty insurance that end up being gold mines and print profit. As dads, you need a different kind of PNC insurance. In my opinion, it's profiting in craziness. So to profit in the craziness of lunatic sports parents, I noticed that during the pandemic, brilliantly Game Changer pivoted for families and grandparents that couldn't go to the games, they added live stream. Yep. Which should have just been the parent and maybe the grandparent out of town. And that is a sweet idea. But because Americans and profiting in craziness right here, of all the consumer resilient <laughs> expenses, what their kids are doing. When you and I were on the team, we shared a bat. Now they all go buy the $300 right. bat. Yeah, and maybe an extra one. I have no idea what they're doing. The coach had the like three it. bats. The coach had three baseball bats, and you picked which one you liked the best. You know, and uh, so uh, that, I mean that's how I remember it. So while I'm still looking at that old vintage Yogi Bear card, and remembering the good things about the old vintage baseball game changer, in one spring month this year, has more hours watched of live games than in the entire history of Major League Baseball games combined. Wait, say that again? Wait. In one... <laughs> that is not what I thought we were... That's not what I thought I was going to hear. <laughs> and I, I used a, a crazy example of instead people of... People watching Little League games on this app, the hours exceeded. Say, say it again. The, we, 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 we gave away about 280 million hours last year watching Game Changer. In good. one month, on Game Changer, there will be more hours consumed watching games than in the entire history of every, every major league baseball game combined. How is that possible? And I share, <laughs> like, how is that I told, possible? I told you we're going to have this PNC division profiting and craziness, but I use it as example of brilliant, curious, open-minded. They saw this, this wasn't a retail sporting goods store idea. This was using technology, right. not viewing it just like we talked about in the environment a minute ago, not viewing it as an either or, or technology is going to kill us. It is what could we build that would put us out of business or what could we build and pivot and use for our business? And good companies are doing this every day that are curious and they are pivoting. And when they reward stakeholders along the way to create and foster a better environment, capitalism is a really, really wonderful place to continue to develop and disrupt in good ways. And so that stat blew me away. That stat blows me away, uh, for sure, for sure. We were, uh, you're talking about low dividend. We have an illustration for this, but we were talking about like low dividend uh, yielders, low dividend yield companies, uh, you know, versus like high dividend yield companies. But how over time, if those low dividend yield companies are growing their dividends more, then in a, in a short amount, a shorter amount of time than you would think or suspect, uh, you know, you're you're getting paid more from those low dividend yielders that are growing faster than the high dividend yielders. So, so that example that you're showing, um, and while I'm a YouTube viewer of Matt, he got some great stuff here, um, and I'm happy to contribute just a little bit. So that previous slide, it just shows the actual current yield every year. And there is a considerably higher yielding stock. And these are two real examples that attract a lot of income seeking investors and portfolio managers and was an aristocrat. 
and the next year, by the way, cut their dividend for the first time. Again, that's a red flag to me. But look underneath, and they're in the same industry, by the way, a lower yielding stock to that Yogi Berra math, you know, about 2%. And any one of those years, you would have bought it, you'd have only made 2%. But to me, and the next slide, what matters most to an actual stakeholder, what they are holding in their hand, and the real magic of dividend growth underneath those yields is you made considerably more on the lower yielder. And that mailbox math, as I affectionately call it, and where the inbox ticker comes from, is just not discussed enough. And again, it goes back to where we started. Not what I like or what looks good or what the market is doing, but what an actual individual investor for their family needs. And I think more than another growth or income product, there's certain, we have plenty of each, would be growth of income to be able to answer the question of how much is enough and those that are counting on you to one day not have to work for all of the earned, earned income and to be paid while you sleep um, is a wonderful thing. Yes. Uh, no, that, that math can definitely be favorable uh, to, to the retail investor. Uh, Ryan, I don't want to, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but like, uh, you know, like, while I got you, like, how do you, uh, you, you know, we have a lot of parent listeners and watchers. How do you try to teach your kids about financial lessons? You're in the financial industry. And, uh, you know, I think we, we both agree, like, this is like, uh, I grew up like, and I knew nothing about money. Uh, like I remember getting out of the Navy and, uh, I, I mean, I, I would struggle to write a check, you know, uh, it was just like, investing was something rich people did. And that's not what, you know, that's not us working people. That's not what we concern ourselves with or how, you know, we, we don't have enough money to invest, you know, you have to be rich to invest. So like, obviously I don't want to raise my kids that way. So when you're, you know, when you're teaching your kids, uh, financial lessons, how, how do you go about that? One of my favorite questions that you and I talk about all the time. And as I was leaving this morning, I told him I was excited. I get to talk to a detective and a stock market ace. And I don't have, I get excited. I, every day I leave the house, I'm screaming with them. We're going to attack this day with a relentless enthusiasm, unknown to mankind. And the teenagers, as we both agree, kind of maybe roll their eyes a few times at it, but that's just how I'm, it's not optimist. It's not certainly not a pessimist. It's a realist. Um, it's a possibilist, and I'm enthusiastic about it. And I think that's one of the answers to your question. I think they need to see us be excited about working, um, and I, I and and who we're with. I, I think that's more important. That important part of any plan is who you're with, not what you're invested in. So watching, because I do believe, and I've seen this from folks that we serve, your ROI on your craft, and is going to have a bigger bang for your investment buck than anything you invest. This is why we have a dis dysfunctional relationship with the market. It's what we're expecting the market to do for us, as opposed to nose down, loving what you're doing to earn it, to then save. And then if we employ people around the world in these businesses to get paid while we sleep, all the better. Uh, but Matt, it comes down, we, we talk at the supper table. I will put that against any MBA. Um, I really will. And to be curious and to now more than ever, read aggressively. So now everybody has an opinion and they're going to be bombarded with right. them. Right. You and I used to be able to assume kind of that what we're reading or shared as a truth, even by a teacher, like, I don't know what the teacher's agenda is even. So reading yeah. aggressively an original source fact checking, that's why we each have a background, whether it be detective or investigative journalism, like I want to go deep, deep, deep. 
while that may not be a necessary, that's not a stock market chart yet, but I think it's the key ingredient to how to remain curious. What is something that you'd want to dive deeper in? Let's fall down one of these rabbit holes together. And also as a parent, let's invest with our kids, not for them. I don't personally have 529s or funds or trusts. I have an account with each one of their names and they have something that interests them that we have looked at together, right or wrong. No portfolio manager on that part. We're just going to look right. at it together so that maybe, just maybe, it lights from a spark of something that they might find more interesting if it does work. And then some safe, beautifully boring stuff next to that. Um, but I've learned more investing with them and tripping down some of those rabbit holes. I mean, Peter Lynch used to say, follow your daughters to the mall, yep, see what yep. you invest in. Well, I mean, maybe now it's seeing what they're doing on the couch and what, and there's some lessons that I've right. learned. Or what app they have on their phone or whatever. Yep. And yep. then what, what could we both learn together? What might we take granted for? Let's get outside and talk about it. Let's go on a walk. Um, when we're traveling, we're talking about businesses. They can't help it, but just remaining curious and talking about this stuff without any right answer. Don't worry about having all the right answers. Don't worry about being a CFA, just talking about the art of a business. That's why I share the $300 in a cookie jar. That's not balance sheet. That's the start. And that's right. what's most important, I think. And then the hardest thing of all with all these distractions now with school and sports is get a job because if you work for it, <laughs> it's going to mean a lot more to you. I mean, my a first investment more. was at 13. You're more careful with it than it was given to you. So that sets up a different relationship with money. Uh, yeah, no, 100%. What I, I said that was the last question. I actually have one more question. You mentioned earlier, and I meant to follow it up, and I'm going to kick myself if I don't. You said you have a tournament of stocks every week or every weekend. Is that what you said? What is this tournament of stocks? So what, what does that mean? Like, what, what are you doing there? So, well, this is a whole other episode. So let's go. Let's do it again. <laughs> so Part the two. idea, and I've done this since I started, was when the market is closed, when the phones are not ringing all of the data for thousands of stocks. And they're actually less than when I started, believe it or not. And I know you know that, but the selection criteria, the market does that for us in some cases, but I don't yeah. want to wait till they go bankrupt to be removed from the SP. So I believe in active management, mainly Matt, because I believe when the inputs change, so will the outputs. So what that means, big picture is since the prices of these stocks move and the fundamentals might not have, it sets up a new risk reward scenario. So it shouldn't be whatever we like, we should always like, because it's a great company. What if the odds have changed, the valuations have changed, or that 105% new dividend growth from a company or an industry you haven't ever even looked at leads you down one of these rabbit holes. So I dump every single ticker, all objective math-based with three dozen different variables that we use to measure the rate of change. And... I score them. I literally rescore every single stock on an ongoing basis. It also keeps me humble. What if we fall in love with our best ideas, which I don't allow myself to because I just look at the math. What if a cell discipline, that guy on the end of the bench wants to work his tail off and you could underpay for him to go take the starter's job? So I make these stocks compete against each other because that's a common thread. We talked about some of the most successful businesses looked at competition and self-scouting. How could we beat ourselves? I do that to the portfolio as well. 
Now, do you do you separate by industry or you know do you say like well look it's no fair that this company is obviously going to have a higher return on invested capital or a higher margin or whatever uh, because they're in this industry and this you know do you separate by industry or it it doesn't matter. That that's a really great key point that anybody could benefit from, whether it be dividend growth in my case or somebody that looks at technology. You cannot accidentally get overweighted in what you think you want to look for or like, and you end up with heavy concentration. That is how the best money managers all get carried out on their shields eventually. Conviction and or leverage. And if you put both together, that's who always ends up through every cycle getting carried out on their shield. We've seen it time and time again. So by rule, I want to be in every single sector. So they are different. You're right. And every right. single tournament for different, I will never lean to one side of the boat or the other. Same way I look at growth and value. I don't want to be an either or. I want both. So it's sure. balanced by rule. That roster construction, Matt, which is what you're getting at, is a key piece. It can't just be a selection process and you buy a list of stocks that might actually all look a lot like. Sure. The roster construction, and we limit ours to 50. That, that to us is an optimal number. It's not the answer for everybody, but we can be completely diversified in every sector, in every size, small, mid, and large, in both styles and with revenue sources from around the world. So I'll put that balance in only 50 names up against thousands of diversified portfolios of funds that are overlapping oftentimes. That's a big deal for anybody to look at in their own process. Ryan, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. If people want to follow you or find out more about you, where where can they go? Well, we love sharing our work as an open playbook um, as we go with, with our partners and our friends. The, the picture book, which you and I chopped up, you can go to our website, freedomdaysolutions.com and sign up and see some of what we share. Um, and, and we love doing it. We chop up a small, quick hitting podcast each week, Mailbox Money. Um, my partner, Jackson Wood, nudged me to do that. He's young. I'm the digital dinosaur. He pushes, he pushes all the buttons. I give him all the credit sure. in the world. I'm sure. having fun sharing. Um, and we both learn from really smart people that we're surrounded by. And I'm grateful to live in that small, beautiful world of abundance to know people like you. Um, and so that we, we post blog posts up there. I love chopping it up on, on Twitter as well. And we're happy to share um, because we, I've, I mean, I've never had one single negative experience on social media and I don't understand. It's just by choice. I, it, it, you, well, your, your, your personality makes it very hard to be negative towards you, but it's out there. <laughs> just take my word for it. It is out there. People aren't making that up. <laughs> I, no, I, I get it. Uh, I just, I'm just selective. I just rather talk to you right now than ignore all sure. of them. Um, sure. and I do think, um, that, that world exists and it can be the small, beautiful world if we want it to be. And I, that last, and one last little bonus piece of advice, one of those podcasts, the only one I've ever sent to one of my kids was titled PTO. And everybody that wants a job that always asks me pay time off and mm -hmm. uh, yeah. roll your, it was about permission to obsess, taking an uncrowded path. Um, if you really love your craft, you will naturally find people like I found you to share and enjoy, your, whether you're online or offline, I'm offline a heck of a lot more than I am online. Um, when, you sh when you surround yourself with people that really, really love what they do and who they are with and who they get to work for, I never wanna stop where this is, this is a gift and I feel lucky 
to attack these days with relentless enthusiasm. Permission to obsess. PTO, uh, it's a different path. And, right. I, and I just told him, I said, what if you go in, they were getting ready for job interviews. What if you're the only one that goes into a job interview and doesn't ask about benefits? I didn't, I didn't, I went to a job interview that didn't exist. That was another piece of advice. I offered to work for nothing. I started the mailroom on Wall Street. Take uncrowded paths. It's still working for me now as a portfolio manager. I just have a lot more math to back it up. But for kids and anybody listening that I, I do believe in that. And so it was just a little, my, that's, that's the way I deal with frustration of different versions of PTO and right, right. ESG. I'll turn PTO into permission to obsess. I'll turn ESG into energy, sustaining goods, smuggling goods. Um, and so we just, we'll, we'll, we'll keep turning and smuggling those goods with you together. Gotcha. Well, uh, Ryan, th thank you so much for coming on and, and, for, and for your time. It was my pleasure. I'm Matthew Cochran. We're 7Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone.